What's up, guys? I'm Jordan. I, uh, I'm one of the pastors at Salt City Church, the church that Salt Company is a part of. You guys should come. It's fun. And uh, I got to know Tony as a sophomore, which was an experience. If you want to come talk to me about it afterwards, I got to know Tony with his protein powders and his creatine <laughs> and his like five jobs and his like pseudo professional weightlifting at, at that time, I think. And now he's all grown up. And like I was, I was talking to you guys and you referred to him as Pastor Tony. Wow. And Pastor Tony is all grown up, baiting you into going to fall retreats with tattoos. Man. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's fun being here. I, dude, I am proud of you, Tone, and thankful for you, man, and uh, glad to be here uh, with you guys. So one of the, uh, the streaks in my life that I was proud of for a while is I'd, I'd gotten through my whole life uh, without breaking a bone or ever getting stitches, and the streak ended my freshman year of college, and I wish it was a cool story. I wish it was like climbing a mountain, and I jumped onto a different rock and, you know, ripped something or whatever, but... Uh, what happened is I was stepping over like a three-foot fence. Oh, yeah, it's tough. And, and I was wearing flip-flops, and the whole story is I just didn't pick my foot up high enough. And it just caught on the fence, right? And so I like stepped over it, foot caught, and went, ouch, that hurts. And then I stepped over, and I looked, and there was a hole in my foot. Oh. Yeah, and so, uh, so that, that was a thing that happened. And uh, I'm from... I'm from northern Iowa originally, which typically I wouldn't tell you because if you're not from Minnesota, you don't even know where Iowa is. If you are from Minnesota, you hate Iowans. Uh, it's a thing. I've learned that. So typically I hide that about myself. But here's why I'm telling you that is because I'm about to play into every stereotype you have of Iowa. Okay, so, uh, so I had to go to the nearest hospital, which was in Britt, Iowa, which is exactly what you would think a town named Britt, Iowa is like. There's like literally probably 10 times as many pigs as there are people. And they had a hospital. And this hospital was, there was like three rooms in it, and I walked in, I'm like holding my foot, and they're like, all right, we'll figure that out. And the doctor walked in, he was like, oh, looks like you need stitches. And I was like, yes, yes I do. There's a hole in my foot. And then he started like looking through stuff to try to find stitches, and he like couldn't find it. So then a nurse came in, and he was like, hey, can you go try and find these stitches? So she's gone for a while, comes back, she's like, I can't find it. And so he just looks at me, he's like, we can't find the stitches. And then he said, we've got these other stitches that should work. He said, should. He said, should. And he pulled out, I mean, they look, it looked like a wire, like, the, like a barbed wire fence without the barbs, but like still like that thick. And he like proceeded to give me stitches. And I had like this hole in my foot and he gave me like a total of three stitches and he tied them together and it looked like, like a bow tie on a shoe on my foot. Like, I think if I gave you guys needles, about 50% of you would be able to do it better than this guy did it. And so I like waited a while. I came back. I got the, the stitches out and it didn't, it didn't look great, but I figured if he's taking them out, it's fine. And I was supposed to go to a lake that weekend, a tube with some friends. And I was like, hey, I'm planning on going tubing this weekend. Is that fine? And he was like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I would try it. And so I went tubing that weekend. And so I'm like laying on my stomach on the tube, and I call out to my college friend, like, hey, go easy, I've got this thing with my foot, but he was my college friend, so he drove as fast as he could, and so he whips me outside of the wake, and then whips it back, and I come flying at this wake, I get air, and literally like five seconds into this thing, I land, and my feet just smack on the water, and I like let go of the tube, I fall in, and I don't even have to look, I know what happened, 
But I kind of am laying there, and I do this, right? And I'm just looking at the inside of my foot. And so then I went to a real hospital and got real stitches, and they, they finally healed, all right? So tonight, guys, we're talking about how you are spiritually, mentally, emotionally sick, how you're wounded, and you need healing, okay? And that wounding is, it's like that, that pit in your gut that when you slow down enough, like when you get away from your phone and you pay attention to your life and there's just like loneliness and sadness that's coming from that, that sickness and that wounding, and a lot of you are looking to heal that with all sorts of stuff. Whether you know you're sick or wounded or not, you're looking to heal it. It's part of your instincts as a human being. And so you're running to stuff. You're going to ambition. You're going to school. You're going to sex. You're going to relationships. You're going to a certain lifestyle. You're going to friendships. But they can't actually heal you. So, so those things are like a bad stitch job. And, and when you hit something in your life, when you hit suffering, or when you get everything you wanted with your ambition and you find out that it can't satisfy your soul, that thing, that wound is going to split back open. You're going to find out that the things you thought were healing it didn't. That it just, it just covered it up for a minute so that you thought you were fine, but you're still sick. And so I want to talk about what real healing looks like. And we're going to look at this story from Acts 3. We're working through the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible or an app on your phone, if you want to start flipping to the book of Acts, it's, the Bible's really important to us. And so if you would look at it with us, that'd be, that'd be awesome. We're talking about the story of this, this guy who's been sick his entire life. And he gets physically healed by Jesus through one of Jesus' disciples, Peter. And it is about that. It's about the story of that guy's healing, him getting better. But we're going to find out that the, the story is about way more than that. There's a sermon that Peter gives immediately after he heals this guy where he explains that what Jesus did for this guy, he wants to do for the entire world and he wants to do for you. That the physical healing is a symbol of a spiritual reality of what Jesus wants to do in the world. He wants to make it well. And so instead of running to these other things that you go to in life to try to fill that hole, whatever that hole is for you, you need to come to the great physician and you need to find healing in him. And so let's look at this, this story. So a little bit of context. There's, there's this guy that has been lame from birth. So he's been completely unable to walk since the point he was born. And so every day of his life, he gets carried to the temple steps and he gets put there to ask people for money. And so just think about what this sickness has done to this guy's life. He functionally doesn't have a life outside of other people that are trying to help him. And so uh, Peter and John are walking up the steps to the temple to go pray, and they encounter this guy on the way, and he's going to ask him for some money. Let's pick it up in verse 4, Acts 3, verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he, that's this, this lame man, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles 
were made strong. So I just want you to put yourself in the place of this man. Think about what this illness would have done to his life. Think about what it would have done socially. People are hanging out at somebody's house. Somebody's got to carry you there if you're going to go. So you're left out consistently. Think about what it would have done to his mental, emotional health. Think of what it would have done to him spiritually. He's sitting on the the temple steps every day, watching people walk into the presence of God. But at this point in this culture, when you were sick like that, especially throughout a lifetime, it was assumed that you were cursed by God. That it was because something was wrong with you, and so God was against you. And so likely these people wouldn't have had empathy on him, and he might have even believed that about himself, that he wasn't allowed to go into the presence of God, and so he just sat near it on the temple steps, but could never actually experience God for himself. That's what it's been like for 40 years for this man. And then in an instant, in a miraculous instant in a single touch point with Jesus through Peter, he was healed. And he got his whole life back. It wasn't just that he could walk again, but think about all of the implications for all of those other parts of his life. He got his entire life back. And look, Christians believe this. I, so, so what I mean by that is this isn't just a neat story. This isn't an allegory. We, we think that God really can do things like this and that he still does do things like this when he wants to in his world. We believe in a supernatural world that breaks into this one when he wants to. Why do we believe that? Because God's the creator. And if you make something, you can do whatever you want with it. If I build a sandcastle and I want to add a new wall, that's no big deal. That's easy for me. None of you are that impressed by that, right? I build up the sandcastle, I add a new little tower. None of you are like, whoa, that's crazy, that's miraculous. It's like, no, that's, that's normal. I made the sandcastle. I can add to it. I can break the whole thing down if I want. God is the creator. He made microbes and black holes and the math that governs them. He numbers blades of grass. He designed the Grand Canyon. He made everything. And so when he wants to break into his world, hello, when he wants to break into his world and intervene, he can. Now that seems weird to us because we live in a very naturalistic materialistic society, but the alternative of what you would have to believe is way worse. So yeah, in order to believe in God, you got to believe in a supernatural world, a, a transcendent reality that goes beyond sort of our natural ability to comprehend it. But your alternative to, to believing in that is to believe that there is no God and that life therefore is meaningless. That there's no point that we're a random collection of, of atoms floating through space that will just go away when we die and that there's no overarching purpose to your life. That's your alternative. And, and I've met a lot of atheists and agnostics in my life. And, and by the way, if that's you and you're here, it's awesome that you're here. It's hard to walk into an environment like that when you don't believe the same things. Thanks for coming. You're welcome here. I've met a lot of atheists and agnostics in my life, had conversations about stuff like this. I've never met a single atheist or agnostic that believes that life doesn't matter. Every single one of them are trying to live a moral life. They're trying to find a transcendent purpose for their life. They're trying to find something to live for. Why? Because it contradicts their worldview. So why? Because they know in their guts <laughs> that there's a God that exists 
that there's a world beyond this one, that there's more to life than just what we can see, that there really is a purpose, that there really is meaning, that your life actually matters for something, and you should be living for that reality. And so that's what we believe, even when we don't fully understand how that works. So that's what's going on in the story, this inbreaking of this supernatural world. Now, one of the things that I love about this story is how much more this guy got than what he asked for. Okay, did you catch that? He, he was asking for money. That's what he thought he, he needed, right? He wanted some loose change. Jesus gave him legs. He, he, he wanted to just get through the day. Jesus made him dance. He got blindsided by the creative generosity of God. He got more than he ever even knew to ask for. And look, that can be true for some of you guys. It's been true in my life. I didn't even know what to ask God for. I grew up around the faith, but I hated it. I hated going to church. I felt condemned. I felt guilty. I didn't, I didn't understand the rules. It's because I hadn't met him. And then when I met him, I found out that he had more for my life than I even had for my life, more than I even could imagine or ask him for. And some of you come to Salt Company asking God or, or hoping for some good things, right? You're, you're asking for friends, or maybe you're asking to be a part of something significant, like a movement, like you like that there's other college students that are a part of this. Maybe you grew up going to church and you want to keep that a part of your life, and all of those things are good things, but Jesus wants to give you something categorically better. Jesus won't stop with what, just what you're asking him for. He wants to give you more than you even know. That's what he does. He rarely gives you what you want, but he always gives you what you need. And it's categorically more than you ever knew to ask. In order to do that, he has to heal you. He has to diagnose and fix what's gone wrong in all of us. And all of us have a disease. Brokenness in the world that we live in a, a fallen world that isn't the way that God designed it to be. And so we are fallen people. We, we, we have a disease called sin. It's not just brokenness. It's more than that. It's like fighting with God. It's living differently than we should live, than, than what's good for us. And the advantage that this man in the story might have had on us it was, it, is that it was very obvious to him how sick he was. He could see those ramifications on his life. And we're every bit as sick as he was, maybe just in a different way. For some of us, maybe it is physical, but for most of us, it's spiritual. There, there's something wrong, and it affects our eternal destiny, but it's harder for us to see. We don't see it as a reality like he did. And so we've got to be able to see the sickness before he can give us healing for it. And so Jesus, through Peter, heals this guy, and then Peter is going to stand up in a crowd and preach a sermon. And he's going to explain what just happened. And Peter is going to levy some pretty heavy accusations on this crowd, okay? And look, we, we teach through the Bible, okay? So I just want to show it to you. Similar to Peter, I don't know most of you, right? This is going to get real for a minute. That's because I just want to show you what's in this text because I think it's important. So look at verse 13. So this guy gets, gets healed. These people see it and they come running. 
And they gather around Peter and John in the temple. And so Peter's got their attention, so he's going to preach to them. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So Peter here is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was abandoned by his friends and his family, the people that supposedly loved him, uh, the people of God that was supposed to worship him, stood and chanted, crucify him. And so these, these people turned him over to the Romans, and that's what it's talking about is he was put on trial, and the Romans found him innocent and were about to release him. These people hated him so much that they stood outside and chanted, crucify him. And the Romans even tried to release a murderer in his place, but the people didn't want it. They accepted the one who was taking life so that they could crucify the author of life. That's what Peter's talking about. And I want you to notice something that he's doing here. He's talking to this, this random crowd of people that were gathered in the temple. And in verse 13, he says, you delivered Jesus over to Pilate. In verse 14, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one, Jesus. So he's holding them all accountable for what happened to Jesus. Now that's interesting because that might literally be true for some of them. In other words, some of them might have actually been at the crucifixion of Jesus and they might have really been yelling, crucify him. And they might have been a part of that accusation of Christ. But certainly, people in that crowd and probably most of the people in that crowd were not there at the crucifixion. But Peter here is accusing them of crucifying Jesus. Now, you can imagine somebody in the crowd feeling like, what, like I didn't... I didn't do that. I heard about it, but I didn't crucify him. And here's what Peter is saying is, yes, you did. You crucified him because of your sin. Jesus went to the cross because the demands of sin is punishment and death. The Bible talks about that over and over again. Sin is, is not just breaking rules. It's rebellion against God. And there's, there's punishment for that. It's, and that's what's just. That's what's good. God doesn't let evil off of the hook. That's what makes him a good God. And so what Jesus was doing on the cross is he was allowing himself to be crucified for sin. He was taking that punishment so that you wouldn't have to. Meaning that sin was the reason why Jesus hung on the cross. And extreme problems require extreme solutions. The solution to the problem, to the sickness of sin, was the murder of the Son of God, the author of life. How significant is that problem? If that's what it took to solve it. And I think the moment that the weight of sin and what it did to Jesus dawned on Peter... There's this, there's this moment in the Gospels where Peter, Peter has denied Jesus. So Peter was one of, if not Jesus' best friends. And Jesus was a man. Yes, he was God, but he was a, he was a man. He gets, he gets lonely. He gets sad like you do. And in the hardest moment of his life, Peter, Jesus' best friend, took off 
and pretended like he didn't know him. And there's this scene in the Gospels where Peter is kind of standing on the outside, too embarrassed to admit that he knows Jesus, too afraid to identify with him, but curious about what's going to happen to him. And he's watching this trial. And there's kind of this haunting moment where Jesus just turns in the middle of the trial and he just makes eye contact with Peter. He doesn't say anything. He just looks at him in the eyes. And Peter sees the heart of Jesus and the scripture says that he just weeps. It just breaks him because he realizes the reality of what he's done to his friend. And I think Peter has had that turning over in his head ever since that moment with Jesus. And I think here, he's looking into the eyes of the crowd and he's realizing that it's not just him that killed Jesus, but it's every person who's ever sinned, who's ever done something wrong, contributed to that moment. And so he looks in the eyes of that crowd and that obviously includes us. And so he would look into our eyes And he levies this accusation, verse 15, you killed the author of life. Your sin hung him there. Your selfishness, my pride, your greed, that's why Jesus had to hang on a cross and die like a criminal and a sinner. When you sin, you're not just breaking rules, you're breaking him. Your Savior that loves you, broken for you. Your sin hung him there. And in that decision point of sin, you know what I'm talking about? Whether you're you're a Christian or not, I think you know this, but in particular for you that have said, I love Jesus, I trust him, I want my life to be about him, I know this moment too well. When you know you shouldn't do something, but you want to do it, and you're in that decision point where you're trying to decide, am I going to follow through on this sin or not? You're standing over the cross with a nail in your hand trying to decide if you're going to hammer it in deeper to his arms. That's what's happening in your sin. Sin isn't abstract. It's personal. It's a betrayal of someone that you love. And that sin is our sickness. And it's wrecking all of our lives. And it wrecked his life. And just like the man who was sick, that his entire life was affected, sin doesn't just affect one part of your life. It's not like you, you sin in one area and it's isolated to that area. It affects the whole thing and it'll eventually kill your soul. It's a, it's a deadly sin. And here's why we have to deal with that fact, not to just feel shame and not just to feel guilt. It's because we can't see the cross as something done for us until we see the cross as something done by us. When you see that you hung him there, you can feel the weight, the reality of the remarkable love offered to you. And here's what's so crazy about the cross. What's crazy about it is that we participated in it, that we killed the author of life. Like I've been feeling that as I'm prepping for this sermon. Guys, I'm not just talking to you. I'm feeling that, that my sin hung him there. That's what's crazy about the cross. But the thing that is even more mind-blowing is that the cross was the plan. It was the plan the whole time since before the foundation of the world. It's not plan B, it's plan A. That's how Jesus wanted to redeem us. 
is Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. Do you see the irony in the statement, you killed the author of life? You can't kill the author of life. He designed life. No one can take life from him. He gave it to you freely. He offered it up as a sacrifice. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. In Alabama in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was organizing some marches for freedom in Birmingham. And the police commissioner at the time was a guy by the name of Bull Connor. And Bull Connor made the horrible decision to fight with peaceful, peaceful protesters. And it's those images that I think all of us have seen of protesters getting sprayed with fire hoses and dogs getting unleashed into crowds of people, right? Why did he do that? Why did Bull Connor make that decision? Because he was evil. Because he was indulging sin. He meant it for wickedness. But here's what happened the next day. Is those photos were plastered over the front pages of every newspaper in America, and America woke up to the horrific reality of what was happening in the South, and it sparked the civil rights movement. See, Bull Connor was working for evil, but God was out in front of him manipulating it for good. That's who God is. And the most horrific sin ever committed was the crucifixion of the Son of God, the murder of the author of life. But God was out in front of that. Because in order for there to be an empty grave, there had to be a death. And so he allowed the death so that he could rise Jesus from the dead. He manipulated evil for good so that he could release life onto this planet. And we could have access to new life in him forever. What we meant for evil, God meant for good. And so what do you do with that information? Like you hear this incredible reality of what God has done, this, this horrible reality of who we are. What do you do with that information? Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back. The, the word repent, it, it's kind of a religious sounding word. Here's what it means. It means turn back. It, it means that you, you change your mind about what you believe and how you live. You go an entirely different direction because you've encountered something that means that your life can't be the same. Jesus is that thing. His crucifixion and resurrection is that thing that means your life can't be the same. And so you turn a different way. Repent means to agree with God about everything he says is true to align yourself with him. Even when you disagree with what he says, you believe that he's right and you follow his way of life because of his love for you. I think at times we, we sin because we think that God's rules are arbitrary. Right? We think God's just like a fun hater. And he just likes to drop some rules on us and enforce them for the heck of it. And so we just think it's dumb. And so we don't pay attention to it and we sin. But I want to tell you, God's rules are not arbitrary. They're not like arbitrary rules. They're like natural laws, okay? So let's talk arbitrary rules first. I feel like school is the epitome of arbitrary rules. In particular, when you were young, it's like you got to stay this far apart from the people in front of you in line. You got to raise your hand before you sharpen a pencil. There was, guys, this one was the worst for me. There, okay, so when we were playing on the playground, right, we were playing kickball. There was a line of bushes along the playground, and there was just this rule that you can't go in the bushes. 
Why? I don't know. You just can't go in the bushes. And so I would, like a kickball would go in the bushes, and it'd be literally like sitting there. I could see it, and I'd be standing there looking at it, like wanting this kickball. And what I'm supposed to do is go tell this teacher who was named the Enforcer. (laughs) Not really. We weren't that creative. It was like, you know, it was like elementary school. But thinking back on it, she's the Enforcer in my brain. And we were supposed to go tell her. She always wanted to... She, uh, she cared about the bushes and the ball going in the bushes. And I didn't want to tell her. I just wanted to pick up the ball. It was so arbitrary. It was so frustrating. It doesn't make any sense. Arbitrary rules are frustrating. And, and they don't make you want to follow them. The fact that it was arbitrary made me want to do everything in my power to not follow them. And we tend to think of God like that. But his rules are not like arbitrary rules. They're like natural laws. They're like the law of gravity. It's the way the world works. So you can't decide one day that you want to fly and jump off your roof and defy the law of gravity. It's going to hurt. So somebody's standing on your driveway or whatever looking up at you saying, hey, you shouldn't defy the law of gravity. That person loves you. You should listen to that person. They're trying to save you from pain. God's rules are like natural laws. He made this world. He knows how it works. He's telling you how to live because he wants what's good for you. He doesn't want you to experience pain. He's he's for you, not against you. And that's why he's telling you how to live. And so agree with him. Repent. Agree with him about how he says to live. And what will happen if you can do that, if you can repent? Repent, therefore. Uh, this This is verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So if you can repent, here's what will happen. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll experience the times of refreshing in God, and Jesus will restore all things, including you. Let's talk about those briefly. Your sins will be blotted out. I think some of us struggle to believe that's actually true. We don't believe God is for us, and so when we sin, we sit in guilt and shame, or we don't confess it, we feel like we can't go to him with it, but the very reason why Jesus came is because he loves sinners and suffers. He wants to support and prop up weak people who need him. Like I want you to imagine that there was a doctor that traveled all the way across the world to provide medical care to a group of people who had a deadly disease and didn't have access to medical care, all right? And so, so this, this doctor flies all the way across the world, and, and, and she flies in all of her supplies and, and everything that, that she needs to help this group of people. And she doesn't want money. She doesn't need anything from them. She, she's not trying to be famous. She's purely interested in healing these people. And so they get all the, the antibiotics. They diagnose it properly. She's ready to help. And then imagine that this group of people just said, you know what, we don't, we don't want your help. What's that doctor going to feel? Sad. When, when, if they're trying to be self-reliant, like we're going to try and figure this out on our own. It's like, I've got the solution. I want to help you. I'm here for you. Like, let me help you. But then imagine that there's a few people that come out of the crowd and say, you know what? I need your help. What does the doctor feel? Joy. Because that's the whole reason that she came. is <laughs> to provide help. Jesus didn't just travel the world. He left heaven to come to earth to help you. That's the whole reason that he came. 
And so he, he doesn't want you to feel like you can't burden him. He came for your burdens. He came to bring healing. He's the great physician. That's what he does. And when you come to him with your sin and you ask him for forgiveness, he delights in that. He's quick to forgive. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's full of compassion. That's what he's like. That's the core of his heart for you. He forgives you, but we can't stop there. I think sometimes we think about salvation as just forgiveness. So he just wipes our sins clean, and then that's kind of the end of it, which would be like if what you thought an oil change was is just dumping out all the old oil, closing the cap, and driving. Yeah, you got to get rid of the old stuff. That's good. But you need new oil in there to make it run, right? Yeah, Jesus can forgive you, but he also can offer you an epic, categorically better life in him. He wants to fill you with goodness, not just remove badness. I mentioned earlier that God wants to surprise you with all the good that he wants to give you. So what is it that he wants to give you? Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. God wants to restore all things. So I'm going to invite the, the band to come up because I guess that's like a thing you do here. Um, so you guys can come up. I've got a little bit left though, all right? It's going to be just a little bit longer, okay? So stick with me, but they're going to come up, do their thing. God wants to restore all things. What does restoration mean? When you restore a car, what are you doing? You're bringing it back to its former glory. So the question for you is, what is God restoring in you? Because all of us have been broken since birth, just like this man was. There's not former glory in us. So what is it that he's restoring? He's restoring in us what we were meant to be, what he designed us to be. We were designed to be good and to be full of life and to experience his life. And he's destining us for heaven so that we can experience life forever in him. That's what he means by restoration, is he wants to bring us back to his initial purpose, his initial design. What does that look like? It looks like resurrected life in you. I want to read you a quote from a, a Yale professor, a Yale University professor who's studied some Christian history. The more one examines the various factors which seems to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause which underlies them. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Without it, the future course of the religion is inexplicable. Something happened to the men who associated with Jesus. What was the vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history? It was the resurrected life of the Son of God. Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead. It's historically verifiable. We don't worship a dead God. He's alive. And this is his world. And you're his kid. And he wants to reclaim this world for good forever. And he won't stop until he does that in this entire world and in you. And his resurrection was like an explosion of life into this world and we're still experiencing the effects 
and we'll experience them forever. And I think a lot of times what I hear people talk about with the resurrection is what does the resurrection prove? It proves that Jesus really was who he said he was. He was God, and you can prove that by him having power over the dead, and that's true and that's good, but I think it's more than that. Here's what it proves is that the fact that his grave is empty means that your grave can be empty too. The fact that that he rose from the dead means that you can rise from the dead forever in him. That's your hope. That's your reality in him. That's the supernatural world that you have waiting for you and that's breaking into our world today through your life with Jesus. So here's what Jesus wants to restore. He wants to restore you. He wants to start to restore you now to pull sin out of your life and give you an experience of what it's like to live with him forever. He wants to restore you in heaven where he'll give you a new body where everything is good and nothing is bad. All of the the imagery of heaven is, is very physical. It's like feasts. Heaven will be heaven and earth meeting. It'll be this physical place where you in a physical body will explore a resurrected universe with Jesus forever. You'll climb mountains and look at waterfalls with Jesus. And every second you will grow in your joy as you explore new wonders found there forever. That's what Jesus wants to give you more than you could ever imagine asking him for. And it's not just that he wants to restore you. He wants to restore society and relationships. Tony talked about this last week. The church is this multi-ethnic community coming together in unity and love. Why is the church that? Because it's the outbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth. It's where heaven meets earth in the church. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what God is like. Is he wants the whole world. And he wants unity in him. It's this beautiful picture of what everyone wants the world to be, but nobody has the power to make it, but Jesus has the power to turn the world into that place that we're all dreaming about. He wants to renew you. He wants to renew society and relationships. He wants to renew the whole world itself. Jesus will not stop until everything comes under his goodness and is good like him. This is a series about power. You've never, never met a power like that. There never will be another power like that. He is Lord of everything. Follow him. And he can make everything in your life good. So I've, I've, got, two, um, I've got two kids at home, almost three-year-old and a four-month-old. So when I come home at night, it is just crazy. It is, it is nuts. So we play for a while, right? And then, then my four-month-old's got to get to bed, and it's like this whole thing. There's this, like, pacifier strategy, this, like, perfect angle with the perfect bounces, right? And there's a lot of crying. It's this whole thing. So my wife, Jessamy, takes care of that, and, and me and my son, Graham, hang out. And by that point, he's just done. He just kind of hates life. He's just tired. And he's just yelling at me about Trash Truck, which is the show that he likes on Netflix. And I think you can use context clues to figure out what it's about. It's not the most riveting thing I've ever seen in my life. My Netflix feed used to be so much better. Now it's trash trucks and Thomas the Train. And so I'm trying to cook dinner, and he's just yelling at me about wanting to watch Trash Truck. And it's just chaos. It's just, it's just nuts. And when he gets done with that, he goes in to try and wake up his sister because he thinks it's funny. His mom doesn't think it's that funny. So I'm trying to keep him out of the room, right? But at the end of the day, after all of this, we like to go out on the deck, and 
he likes to crawl up on my lap and he just sits there and we watch the sunset together. And we just, we just talk about the world and he like points at the stars. He's like, stars. And he hears animals. He's like, did you hear that? I'm like, yeah, I heard it. And we just kind of look at everything together, right? And then we just review the day. I'm like, dude, tell me about your day. And he tells me about it, what his day was like, kind of. He can only kind of talk. But um, he tells me about his day, right? And then I always ask him, hey, was today a good day? And he always says yes. Even though like two seconds ago it was nuts, it was terrible. What happened? Well, he crawled up in my lap and we just looked at the world together and it made everything good. And he's living in that moment and that goodness funnels back through everything that had gone wrong throughout that entire day and his real perspective is it was all good. One day you will crawl up into the lap of God and he'll point out stars and you'll look at his new creation with him. And I'll ask you, hey, let's talk about that life of yours. And you'll just be like, yeah, it was awesome. No matter how hard it was, <laughs> right? Because that goodness of that day will funnel back and color your perspective on everything that's ever happened in your life because his goodness overwhelms any of your brokenness. Right? Jesus, I can't wait to see you. I just declare in faith that you are real and you are alive. You are not a figment of our imagination. You're not a dead God. You're not some old stories. You're alive and you're working in the world now. And, and I'm fired up about that for a lot of reasons. I think this room is one of them. This room is evidence that you are alive. They're proof of your resurrection, <laughs> that your life is breaking out on them and lives are being changed, God. <laughs> And we praise you, and we just want to be with you, and we want, to, we want you to funnel back your goodness through every part of our lives. And God, we, we, we killed you, Jesus. We participated in your crucifixion, and we bring that to you, and we just ask God, please heal us. Forgive us. We need your grace. We, we need you to heal us of the sickness of sin. We can't do it ourselves, so we're looking to you, and we can't wait to be with you forever. So, God, I pray for people in the room that haven't given their lives to you, that you would speak now to them, that you would reveal yourself, and that they would agree with you about what's true. And I pray now with a picture of heaven, a picture of you restoring all things, that we would worship you the way you deserve to be worshipped.